All right, we're back in Acts chapter 5 today. Um, we're going to talk about a rather difficult circumstance the apostles all find themselves in, but they come out pretty happy out of it. You know, as something of a student of church history, I find the church story down through the ages a ceaselessly wondrous 2,000 year story of stumbling, error, worldliness, and compromise. At the same time, I find it a story of faithfulness, sacrifice, service, and uncompromising devotion to Jesus. It's all of that mixed together. The stumbling, the worldliness, and the compromise part is just the common lot of mankind, twisting and abusing every good gift that God gives us, which is the very thing that makes Christ's coming for our salvation so important. Even those who profess him can let sin get in the way and they press their own ideas and feelings forward instead of honor him. And uh, last week we had an example of that. Uh, It's easy for Christians to fall into sin and that has to be something we battle all the time. And if you read through the New Testament, you will notice churches, because of weak leadership usually, um, being corrupted by bad doctrine and even tolerating gross sin in the case of the Corinthian church you'll find arrogant leaders that are rejecting the apostles authority and teaching and phony prophets claiming great powers all of that was going on in the New Testament church and it sounds a lot like today so things don't really change church history is messy and the modern church scene is messy as well in fact To me it's messier but I don't live back then so I probably would have felt that way back then as well. But uh, it's always been messy. There's nothing unique about that. But it it is all around um, compromise, compromising doctrine, uh, worldly perspectives, worldly philosophies entering the church, charlatanism, foolishness, pride, and personality cults, uh, all of that's going on in the church at large around us. And yet, here we are, along with many, many other Christians all over the globe, clinging tightly to the word of God and humbly letting it speak to us. And we have, along with these other Christians that are committed to the word of God, we have a fear of imposing our own ideas on it. So we labor not to do that. We reject all attempts to dismiss God's word or to twist it or alter it or deny it or take it out of context. It's still our our guiding star and our course corrector because when things get off, the Bible is the thing that brings us back to where we're supposed to be. As Elizabeth Elliot famously put it, the word of God I think of as a straight edge which shows up our own crookedness. We can't really tell how crooked our thinking is until we line it up with the straight edge of scripture. That's perfect. That's true individually, but that's also true for the church at large. And that is what faithful disciples understand. God's word is our straight edge. So despite all attempts by humans or devils to twist it or corrupt it, here we are, we're still here, living by it as best we can. That's because God made sure to preserve his word. And much more than that, he he has sovereignly, providentially maintained the significance of the word of God. It's still the best-selling book in the world, and it has been for a very long time. He protects the word 
to protect the church. And he protects the church to keep the gospel central and pure so that people will find the Savior. And God always raises up men who will point us back to the word of God. The word of God is not at the mercy of uncontrolled forces. God keeps it before the world having given us his spirit which makes our hearts love it and makes our hearts desire to honor it. So to keep the gospel of Jesus before the world God preserves his church. There will always be faithful Christians up until the end and we are privileged to be among those people. Whatever the world hurls at the church and in some places the church is sorely pressed by intimidation and violence even today. God uses that very persecution to further his work. Persecution is not out of control. Persecution is under his sovereign will. And as we turn to the book of Acts we're going to see how God cares for his church. And starting in Acts chapter 5 and then running for several chapters we're going to see how God providentially protects the church and then also allows it to be heavily persecuted which results in the gospel going out more quickly than it would have otherwise. But in our story following the book of Acts here he doesn't want that to happen yet and maybe you can guess why. There is a great harvest of God's covenant people being made. Israel is still being called to faith in the Messiah. And one of Luke's great themes in these early chapters is the amazing growth of the church in Jerusalem. And last week we ended the story with the story of Ananias and Sapphira who made a big mistake of lying to God. And that story got out and along with the temple miracle it seemed to many people that God was moving in amazing ways in Jerusalem. Not unlike the days of the great prophets of old. So Uh, That's how people began to think of it. Look at verse 13 of chapter 5. None of them rest, none of the rest dared to associate with them. This is after Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead. That's why they're not associating with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. To such an extent that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also verse 16 the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all being healed. Now remember the prayer of the church back in chapter 4 verse 29 They prayed now Lord take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Well that's that's just what's going on. That's what we see here. So the word is spoken boldly and God is extending his hand to heal miraculously in the name of Jesus through the apostles. So it was a really wonderful unique time. And people were in awe of the apostles. Verse 14 says multitudes were being added to their number. Now miracles are a part of all this. I mean significant abundant miracles. And when you see that line in verse 16 and they were all being healed. I mean that's Jesus level wonder working. I mean that's what would happen when he was with the crowd. He He would heal everyone there. And that's what was going on with the apostles. That's a pretty hard thing to dismiss. So very unusual and it was really for Israel in this wonderful special way. God offering his people the kingdom again 
after the murder of Jesus, he's still reaching out to them. Um, the initial rejection by the leadership of Israel, God is still reaching out to them. Under wonderful things are happening. Miracles are designed to authenticate the message and the messenger that God sends. And the message is Jesus is risen and he is Israel's Messiah. Multitudes are putting their faith in Jesus. Once again, very much like the day of Pentecost, it's starting to look like Israel might repent and turn to Jesus. Certainly a lot of individuals are doing that. And once again, as in Acts chapter 2, the authorities are very unhappy. They don't like what's going on. The word has not only spread to Jerusalem, but people are coming from the surrounding areas. The text says, not so much to worship at the temple, but to receive a blessing from the apostles. And that's the implication there of verse 16. So verse 17, the temple leaders react to that. But the high priest rose up along with his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid their hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. Oh, Peter and John, they, they get to show the other apostles where they were locked up last time. Yeah, I slept over there, and uh, they're all in jail together now, the whole, the whole crew. So remember, Peter and John were warned in chapter 4, verse 18, these, by these same Sadducees, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And the apostles told them they would not follow men over God, so they are preaching Jesus, and they get arrested again. So they make good their word. They were preaching with boldness. They disobeyed the order to desist from preaching Jesus. They disobeyed joyfully. They didn't even tone it down. Now all 12, not just Peter and John, but all 12 are in the slammer now. And it's interesting that Luke says the Sadducees motive for arresting them was jealousy. Verse 17 says they were filled with jealousy. That's, that's an overwhelming emotional response to what's going on there. What do you think they were jealous of? Well, thousands of Jews were turning to the apostles as their spiritual leaders. The apostles were clearly the center of whatever God was doing in Jerusalem because of all the miracles. It was so clear that that was true. So people are hanging on their words and coming to faith. So the momentum and the interest in Jerusalem is with the 12 apostles. The nation is starting to come around. Thousands are attending church. And that one miracle in the, tempo, in the temple is now becoming hundreds of miracles as uh, this goes on. So it's very exciting. Will Israel embrace the Messiah? The Sadducees, who were not very religious, but they did crave political power, they were actually Israel's primary link to the Roman authorities. So, um, and that's been the pattern ever since then that the, the, these connections with them. So even in countries today, religious and political authorities are usually the most opposed to Christianity coming and that's where the persecution usually comes from. They don't want a savior king beyond whatever powers and structures exist. So persecution is usually led by religious authorities and secular authorities that have the same concerns as the religious authorities. So Luke says they're filled with jealousy that animates what they're doing. That's what's moving them. What were the apostles filled with? Well, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's quite a different thing. So it was galling that these men, simple men, fishermen, tax collectors, uh, lowlifes, 
had drawn the attention of so many of the citizens of Jerusalem. So you'll remember how in chapter 4 verse 13 they, they took note of the fact that these were uneducated and untrained men. But they did recognize that they had been with Jesus. So that's where they got their training and their education. But for such small men, unimportant men, these Galileans, to draw such big crowds and defy the authorities, that was just too much for them to bear. So they had been warned. So the temple police are sent out to arrest the twelve and the apostles are all put in jail. What happens next is pretty amazing and and Luke describes it very matter-of-factly. Like it was just another day in the life of the twelve. Verse 19. During the night an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out he said go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. So God isn't done yet with Jerusalem is he? Boys you're free now get out there and keep pitching. That's what the angel says. Well that's my translation. So an angel actually lets them out and that's kind of amusing because the Sadducees theology actually denied the existence of angels so it's sort of funny that one let them go. So it's very fitting and rather satisfying that an angel is a part of this whole thing. The angel's command is to be as public as they can be. There's not to be any hiding or limiting or low key anything. Just get out there and proclaim Jesus just like you have been doing. Right back, right back at it. So the angel also uses a pretty interesting term for preaching salvation. He calls it the message of this life. That's unusual but it does appear in other places. Paul used the phrase word of life in Philippians 2.16 to describe the gospel because that's what that's what it is. I mean um, it's the gospel of eternal life in Jesus. So it is the word of this life. This special life. This eternal life that Christ brings about. So they go right back to the temple and they start preaching. Verse 21. Upon hearing this they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Meanwhile the great council of Israel the Sanhedrin is preparing quite a trial for these men. Now they have all 12 of the disciples in prison they think and they're going to deal with them as they had dealt with Jesus and they have power. They have all the power they think and these men are nothing. So verse 21 it says now when the high priest and his associates came they called the council together even all the senate of the sons of Israel and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. You see how Luke describes this here? all the senate of the house of Israel. So this is a big day. It's not a typical day there in the the meeting place of the the council. Typically you would not have the whole council together. Most of these people had lives and businesses and whatnot beyond the council. So they aren't going to be there for day to day sort of legal matters or trials or this or that. But Caiaphas the high priest and the Sadducees they wanted everybody there this day. The Jesus movement had to be decisively struck down, crushed now. That was their thinking. But something happened that they didn't even know about. So now this is great. Verse 22. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. So nobody even knew they were missing. And they returned and reported back saying we found the prison house locked securely and the guards standing at the doors but when we had opened up we found no one inside. So you have to kind of picture this. I mean they're all seated there. The great council right? The whole council. Caiaphas would say guards bring in the prisoners. And the guard goes out and several minutes pass by and 
they don't come back and more minutes are passing by and the elders are getting a little fidgety there in their chairs and they're looking at each other kind of exchanging glances and you can tell from what the officers said when they came back that they had checked everywhere and tried to find out what happened everything was secure they made sure you know everything was in place so that that would have taken some time so there was no failure in the system found they're just gone they're gone what would you be thinking if you were on the council and they came back and reported that And how would you be feeling if you were Caiaphas, the high priest who set this whole thing up to have this grand day? Well, at the very least, they were perplexed. I mean, greatly perplexed is what Luke says in verse 24. When the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. So I'm sure the men that other men were sent out to see if somehow the apostles might be in the vicinity and whoever was looking didn't have to go very far because they're right there back in the temple again preaching soon so a messenger comes to the council probably at a run verse 25 someone came and reported to them the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people so the temple police go and get them very carefully verse 26 the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. So it's not a popular thing to arrest the apostles. So notice they were actually afraid of the people, so they treat the apostles with kid gloves. Now, somebody might think like, all right, so why did God let them out? I mean, they're right back in the same place they were before. Well, they're right back in the same physical location they were before, but they're not quite back in the same situation they were before. Something rather odd has happened, something wondrous has happened and the apostles are in a different relational position to the council now there something wonderful has happened with them so in terms of power dynamics things have shifted technically the Sanhedrin has all the power the power of the law but something strange has happened so some of these people are going to be sitting there thinking about well how did they get out anyway and everything was secure and they're out again and is something going on so some of the people that are part of that council that aren't part of the top leadership that are creating this situation they're starting to think differently about this whole deal so already the prisoners are being treated better remember they did we were taken without violence there's no roughness rough stuff going on but before the release before they before the angel let them out anything could have happened to them in the prison they um and they're facing the possibility of death before the court but now their position is a lot stronger so the trial begins with Caiaphas chastising the apostles verse 28 we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us notice that Caiaphas won't actually say the name of Jesus that's kind of interesting isn't it in this name this man's blood right he doesn't mention Jesus name but he tells them they have violated the council's strict orders which they had said they were not going to obey and they've also truthfully the apostles have laid the blame of Jesus death at the council's door exactly where it belongs So Caiaphas, you know, he knows that the trial of Jesus was illegal in the first place and all the members of the council would have known that by now. Also, the ones that were there and the ones who were not there during Jesus' trials would have been 
aware they would have heard the story of what happened what do you mean you had a trial at night <laughs> you can't do that and they didn't follow the normal procedures we talked about that in Matthew's gospel so he's basically Caiaphas is accusing them of telling the truth something powerful and corrupt rulers don't like so Peter then speaks for the apostles and he is as clear as he can be and he says the same thing only more succinctly that he said last time about his relationship to this governmental authority Verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So whenever human authority conflicts with divine authority, God comes first. And they do conflict sometimes. Now that's a serious thing to disobey governmental authority. It's only when you have a clear command from scripture. If the government is ordering you to sin or is um, denying telling you you can't do what God requires of you so either either of those situations we disobey the government respectfully so this is a reaffirmation of what Peter had said previously um, that God's authority must always stand above human authority now as to the charge that the apostles are placing blame for the murder of Jesus at the feet of the council well yes they did do that they're guilty of that Peter not only repeats the charge he fulfills Jesus' command to bear witness to the resurrection to this fully assembled council. Verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Wow, boldness, they prayed for boldness, there it is. So this is another opportunity for the leadership of Israel to realize what they've done, to repent of their sins and be saved. God will still have them if they'll repent. He'll still save them, he'll still forgive them but they have to turn to Christ as their Messiah and that's what the apostles are proclaiming. We are witness of these things Peter says we saw this we saw him and we saw him risen and we saw him ascended. So what you are doing Peter says to the council is you are telling us to directly disobey and reject what we know God wants us to do. This isn't just a difference of opinion about theology they, they witness the resurrection of Christ. They have specific commands from his mouth. So they're going to be obedient to him. Well Caiaphas isn't having any of it. Um, in fact he decides that they need to die. Verse 33. When they heard this they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Cut to the quick. That's a great old expression. You know if you cut your nail too deep it starts to bleed. Right? And you go yow. Well they're cut to the quick deep in their heart. That's the Greek expression here is very similar to that uh, that English phrase cut to the quick it means cut deep that's what that Greek word means Peter's words tore into them and brought forth this visceral hostile reaction so Caiaphas is ready to have them killed the, the leadership's ready to have them killed but God is not done with Israel so God intervenes not in a showy way But this time he intervenes not with an angel but with a man. He speaks through a Pharisee. God uses a Pharisee. So 
the unexplained jail release, the courage of the apostles, the testimony that Christ was risen that they had seen for themselves, that is enough to give a thinking man pause. If you're not prejudiced against them, you might start thinking, well maybe there's something to all of this. And that's what's happening here. God is going to use a man who is not a Christian to protect his church. Verse 34, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. So now Gamaliel, he's a very prominent and respected man in Israel, so much so that he is actually known in history outside of the Bible. He was the grandson and carried on the teaching of his grandfather, the most famous of rabbis uh, in the day, Hillel. And in Jewish history, only a few rabbis have been given this special title, Rabbon, which means like my master. In fact, that's the phrase that Mary Magdalene used of Jesus when she saw him risen from the dead. But the first rabbi, Jewish rabbi, to be called Rabbon, and it's very rare in Jewish history for a rabbi to get this master title, the first one was Gamaliel. We know that from Jewish history. In fact in the Mishnah which is the early, earliest known collection of rabbinical wisdom it says since Rabban Gamaliel the elder died there has been no more reverence for the law and purity and piety died out at the same time. So that's how highly they regarded him. It's like everything collapsed in our faith after Gamaliel passed away. Writers referred to him as the glory of the law. In Acts chapter 22, verse 3, we'll get there someday, Paul actually talks about that he was a student of Gamaliel. So Paul sat under him as a teacher. So that's pretty interesting. So why would the Sadducees, though, listen to a Pharisee like Gamaliel? Because the Sadducees and the Pharisees really didn't get along very well. Well, verse 34 tells you he was popular and he was respected by the people. And the Pharisees generally were much more popular than the Sadducees because the Sadducees were sort of the elitists and they were not very religious. They weren't pious. They didn't really, they were political mainly. The Pharisees, at least externally, people believed were super pious. That's what the average Jew believed. Now Jesus knew they were mostly hypocrites, but um, they were pious in the eyes of the people. So for the common man, uh, the, the Pharisees had a lot of regard because they were zealous for the law of God. So Josephus who was a first century historian, a Jewish historian, he kind of liked the Pharisees too. He, so he's a little bit maybe biased but he describes the Sadducees like this. He said they accomplished practically nothing. However, for when, whenever they assume some office they have to submit though unwillingly, yet submit they do to the formulas of the Pharisees. Otherwise the masses would not tolerate them. So Josephus is pretty clear that the Sadducees, put, as much as they kind of despised the Pharisees, they were sort of had to be under them in a way when they made these decrees and they'd pretend to go along with the, the, the rules they made and all of that because uh, the people loved them so much and they didn't want to become so o- um, onerous in the eyes of the people that they would be completely rejected. So they have this kind of tough situation going on there. It's kind of what happens in political things today as well when everybody feels really strongly this way and everybody feels really strongly that way in the same political party and you've got to try to play both sides. So 
that's what goes on. You got to consider what if those people hate me and then what if those people hate me? Well, that's exactly where the Sadducees were with all of this. So they're always worried about public opinion. So here's Gamaliel's advice. He gives his advice, verse 35. Men of Israel, so he's standing up in the council. The apostles are outside. Take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. So this is a false Messiah character. A lot of people jumping around saying they were the Messiah. Verse 37. And after this a man Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census. And drew away some people after him. He too perished and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case I say to you stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men it will be overthrown. But if but if it is from God you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may be found fighting against God. So Gamaliel cautions that a moderate approach to this should be taken. They should not be opposed. He says it'll die out eventually if it's not of God. If it is of God then we might be fighting God. So He's sort of seeing that. You see how that jail miracle may have planted a thought in some of these guys? Now they don't know if it was a miracle. They don't know what happened yet with that but something weird happened there and these men are so bold in proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus and the confidence of the testimony of his resurrection it's giving him some pause there. So false messiahs show up all the time he says. That happens every now and then and they always come to a bad end. Uh, if God is in it, it will thrive. If he isn't in it, it'll fail. So what's going on here? Well, God from the foundation of the world ordained that this man should have the wisdom and the temperament and the background and the education and the respect that he had as an unbeliever to protect the witness of the church to God's covenant people. God arranged that. So in this case he just needed this little prodding with this uh, angelic jailbreak uh, to put enough questions in his mind about these followers of Jesus. So God ordains the lives, the dispositions, and the thinking of men. It says in Proverbs 21.1 the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So the broader principle here is just that ultimately God is in charge of all events for his own purposes. And our part is just to be faithful in whatever he's doing. So we do what is right and good and faithful and we obey the Lord and we leave the rest up to him. He decides all the rest of it. And that might include God's people suffering. But at other times it includes God's deliverance. It all depends on what he wants to have happen at a particular time. Because our suffering may further the gospel in very surprising ways. It became kind of a saying in the early church that every time a Christian died in the Roman arena two Christians were born watching from the stands. And uh, because people saw how Christians died and their courage and their testimony and they were attracted to that. So sometimes God permits that. Persecution may be a divine judgment on a nation. When they start persecuting believers God will bring a judgment on them for that. So he has his own purposes. In fact here in Acts even though they've been let out of prison this time great suffering is ahead 
for the church in Jerusalem. That is coming. We'll see that in the weeks ahead. And for the apostles, they don't get out of this totally clean either. They get a pretty severe beating on this day. So Caiaphas isn't going to just let him go. He's going to go after them for disobeying him. So verse 40, they took his advice. So they did agree to just let the church be. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. So he does the same thing and then released them. So they are going to let him go. But Caiaphas is going to make sure they hear again that they're forbidden to speak in the name of Jesus and they beat them up pretty good. Now a flogging is a formal beating. It's like, um, you know, carefully beaten uh, in an orderly and lawful way. It's not just they're beating them up, but they're, they stretch you out on the ground and they have some kind of stick or rod and they, they beat you. Um, now, a Jewish flogging hurt, but it wasn't anything like a Roman um, scourging like Jesus received. This isn't something that just destroys you and rips you apart. It's just, a, it's just a beating. That's what people used to do to people that were criminals. They didn't put people in jail for long periods of time. They, they, they beat them. And you know that happens in other cultures today as well. You just go through a beating and then they let you go. Or like on a British man of war. They whip you right from the yard. And then they let you go. Uh, back to work. So the law of Moses actually puts a limit. On how many times you can be hit. In a situation like this. Under a legal um, court. A judicial beating. So in Deuteronomy 25. It actually explains that. The first three verses there. It's a wonderful law. Moses said 40 strokes is the most. You can beat somebody with. And the rabbis said by the first century they said 39. Why 39 and not 40 when Moses said 40? Because they said somebody might miscount. And if you hit somebody 41 times you were guilty of breaking the law of Moses. So they said 39 times so if somebody miscounts then it'll still be 40 and we'll be okay. See how careful they were to keep the law in their own weird little way? So they were beaten all of them, all 12 of them in the presence of the court and then warned with wounds still stinging I'm sure not to speak again in the name of Jesus so what do you suppose the apostles did verse 41 so they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name and every day in the temple and from house to house they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ the last words are important. Every day in Jerusalem, the heart of Israel, they were preaching Jesus as the promised Messiah. That's what the Greek word Christ means, Messiah. So God was extending his gracious hand to Israel. They had every opportunity to believe. Many did believe at the beginning. Israel was still in God's heart. And finally notice that bruised and beaten, they went away rejoicing. And Jesus said it was a blessing to suffer for his sake and that's how they see it. We'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead of this persecution as this persecution comes on but the physical, relational and economic consequences of following Jesus can be huge. They can be devastating. But this life is very, very short even for those of us that live what we think is a long time and nothing here lasts but eternal things last forever. So their focus is on what's, what matters, what's eternal, souls. Serving God, that's everything. To suffer for him, is there anything else worth suffering for that's greater than that? To actually be an instrument of God's love in this world, that's worth suffering for. So they don't go out 
reluctantly to preach again. They go out with joy, trusting in God's sovereign will and in all that happens to them. They trust that he's got it under his control. They know his providence oversees all that they will face. And if he wants them to have favor in some unbeliever's eyes, God will provide that. If God wants them to be punished for preaching the gospel and preaching the truth to people and being perhaps badly mauled or killed, that's okay too, because they're gonna do what God wants. That's the heart we have to have, to follow Jesus and to be his witnesses faithfully, no matter what comes our way. And in a culture that's turning hostile to Christianity, we're gonna get at least some pushback, right? And some nasty stuff said about us. We have to be ready for that. And that's okay. We just love people anyway. And it's a joy to be persecuted for his sake. Let's pray. Our great Father, you are over all things and everything serves you in its time. We serve willingly, wanting your holy righteous and redemptive will to be done on this earth. So keep us mindful of your care, your providential care, and your sovereign rule of this world. And may we be about your business. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, next week we'll get another insight into what the early church was like, how it functioned. So come on back then.